The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. And welcome to Backstage Gaming, dramatic takes on your favorite games. I'm Chris. I'm Dylan. And we're here again. Like always, happy Monday, or whenever you listen to our show. We're doing this week something that I am kind of surprised we haven't done before, because it feels like a pretty fundamental kind of storytelling thing to look at. Um, Well, remember how long it took for us to talk about NPCs? True, fair enough. We're not... (laughs) We're not structuring this show over over time. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk, we're going to start at the very beginning and talk about how games begin. We're going to look at like video game intros or video game uh, level ones or like opening sort of gameplay chunks and look at some examples of those that do a really good job of setting the stage and setting it up for what you as a player are going to be experiencing over the course of the game because that's really the the purpose of an intro. The way that you set up a story, the way that a filmmaker or a playwright or a game developer chooses to kind of like lay out the groundwork for the story that they're telling is very important. It helps to establish the status quo of the world. It helps to establish the given circumstances for the characters. It's And the way that it's all presented can help to inform the audience of like what the kind of experience they're going to have is. And so we kind of both came up with a bunch of games that we think do interesting or novel things with that. Um, Obviously, games have the extra kind of added complication of it also needs to teach you how to play the game (laughs) in a way. Oh, shit. Are we talking about that? Oh, fuck. Oh, shit. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we don't have to. I just like that. I'm, I'm much more interested in looking at it from like the storytelling and like thematic sort of side. But Mm. games do typically like if you... If you think about opening levels in a game, something like, this is the classic example, but it's the classic example because it's perfect, World 1-1 of Super Mario Bros. is a perfect, like, tutorial of the game. Because you come to an obstacle that you have to jump over, and then you come to an enemy that you have to jump over, and then you come to an enemy you have to jump over, but, like, there's more things to maneuver around. And, like, it just does such a good job of, like, getting you to kind of grok what's going on naturally. And some of these examples, like, I can think of a couple that I have ready that I'll talk a little bit about the gameplay side, but I'm definitely much more interested in, like, the the storytelling and audience setup side of right, things. Right, right. The hook, as it were. Yeah. The hook, the exposition, act one of our screenplay, because, holy shit, if you were trying to apply a screenplay structure to a video game, boy, howdy, you're going to have some short act ones a lot of the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's going to... refusal of the call what's that uh (laughs) you don't do that in video games you sometimes do but it's not common (laughs) yeah i mean usually if you do i think people would complain about the pacing of the beginning yeah i can think of actually you know what on that topic i want to flop i want to flop right into one 
that I okay. had ready to talk about because it actually does handle this. Uh, in case you haven't listened to any of the other episodes where we talked about like screencraft, screenplays are frequently analyzed. They're not usually written with strict like Act One, Act Two, Act Three in mind. At least not in my experience and like with the mm-hmm. teaching I've done, I've ta- I've had. But when you break down a screenplay, there's like this universal kind of like Act One into Act Two into Act Three, and then those are those acts are broken down into like smaller chunk kind of story beats that you can generally map onto almost any story. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they're based loosely on the idea of the hero's journey as introduced by mythologist Joseph Campbell. And the, the refusal of the call is basically the moment in to use the example that is the easiest with this kind of thing, Star Wars episode five or episode four, when Luke has met with Ben Kenobi and Ben is like, yeah, so, you know, we gotta go, and Luke's like, nah, man, I'm just a farm boy, and I want to be a pilot, I can't do that. That's his refusal of the call. And then right. he gets back to the farm and finds that it's been torched, and that's when he's like, oh, well, I can't refuse the call anymore, I have to go, I have to cross this threshold into the story. Game that does that really well, and one of the games I wanted to talk about, because I'm me, God of War 2018. <laughs> right, right. The God of War series, the original series also has a fantastic opening. The opening of God of War 1 is this, like, huge action-packed set piece on, like, a sinking pirate boat that ends with you fighting a Hydra that takes up, like, half the screen. And it's big and bombastic, and it is the perfect introduction to exactly what the rest of that game is going to feel like, which is big action set pieces, lots of uh, dynamic combat, lots of big sweeping camera angles. Like, it's a perfect vertical slice of what God of War, the original one, is going to be. Mm -hmm. God of War 2018 opens in the most diametrically opposed way to that that it could possibly do. And it opens in a way that doesn't set you up for the gameplay, really, at all. At least not at first. God of War 2018 opens on a shot of Kratos looking much older than he was when you last saw him in God of War, whatever the handheld game that came out latest was. And he's Uh, like... I can't remember either. I never paid attention to the handheld games. There there um, was also God of War Ascension that was not God of War 4, but also low-key God of War 4. Yeah. I ceased to pay attention much to God of War after, like, God of War 2. <laughs> but That's fair, honestly. <laughs> but you see Kratos, and he's, like, kneeling in front of this tree that's got a handprint on it. And he sort of kneels down and touches his forehead to the tree and touches that handprint in, like... Really one of the only, like, one of the first times that Kratos has displayed genuine emotion that wasn't, like, blind fury that you have ever seen as a player. (laughs) And then he stands up and you press the the attack trigger to make him fell the tree. And he very slowly walks and then rafts back to his home with this log while his son talks to him. And it's, like, it's such a quiet and kind of, like, meditative moment And it's a moment of Kratos grieving because you find out through the exposition that he's collecting wood for his wife's funeral pyre. And then that transitions into, like, the tutorial section of the game in which Kratos and his son go out hunting so that Kratos can teach his son how to hunt and, by extension, teach the player how to be Kratos. And it's it's so good because it doesn't set up the, like, the plot at all. That comes, you know, at the end of this section when Baldur shows up and starts to wreck shit. But it sets up, like, this is the the emotional tone that we're going for. This is not going to be a game about giant Hydra fights. This is going to be a game about this guy and this boy and their relationship. And it's 
beautiful and I love it. And that's the kind of stuff I want to talk about today. Oh, the, yeah. the thing with the review, the refusal of the call. This is great because after you, know, you go on this hunting thing with Kratos and Kratos and his son have to fight a troll and his son, like when they kill the troll, his son like goes ape mode and starts like hacking at the troll's body with his tiny knife and yelling like, you can't beat me. I'm stronger than you. And Kratos <laughs> like pulls his son away and, Kudos to the, the, the actors behind this because the mocap oh, yeah, performance is fucking killer. But you can see Kratos, like, terrified because it's like, well, fuck, my son is what I used to be, and that is the last thing I want. And he says, like, you are not ready. Which is mm. also code for, I haven't done enough to make you ready. And they, he's like, we're not going on this journey that we have to make. You're not ready. We're not ready. We're going to go home. And he mm. has that refusal of the call that's only broken when then Baldur shows up and they have their fight and Kratos is like, well, fuck, I guess we can't stay here anymore. <laughs> God, that, that game does such a good job of telling its story. Every time I talk about it, I get excited again. <laughs> I guess to piggyback off of that, I, I wasn't planning on talking about this uh, until you mentioned God of War, but because you are you and I am me. <laughs> <laughs> and, we are, and we are us and we are all and together. And we are us. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to call back to our uh, second episode on the show and talk about Devil May Cry in response to your God of War. Hell yeah. Devil May Cry Um, also has some fucking kick-ass opening segments. It's true. Uh, So, the specifically... Are we talking about the pizza dick? No. (laughs) Fair enough. absolutely not. Uh, For reference, there's a dumb shot in the DMC Devil May Cry reboot where Dante is like flying through his house as it tumbles to the sky naked and his his nudity is being covered tastefully by like a flying slice of pizza and it's it's great i love it but it's also dumb as hell honestly like yeah like people people might like bitch and moan about the reboot but i do think there are some genuinely wonderful moments in in that game yeah Um, they're they're real funny yeah um, but anyway, uh, no, no, uh, so the, the first game does this as well, but the third game does it so well that, like, I, I might as well skip the first and just go straight sure. to the third. Um, so, Devil May Cry, you know, you, you're playing as the son of, like, this legendary Dark Knight who beat back the hordes of hell and saved humanity and all that, you know, very high mytholo- like mythology kind of concept, and... What what the uh, original game does and what the third game does is that they kind of do, like, this prologue scene. In the first scene, there's just clips of your dad in his demonic armor doing sword slashes and fucking kung fu kicks and shit. And it's real goofy. <laughs> um, as, like, this Star Wars uh, text scroll with narration goes, The legendary demon lord Sparta. He saved humanity and blah, blah, blah. Um, the third game has Dante squaring off against Virgil, Dante's twin brother, and they're, like, fighting on the top of a skyscraper. And the narrator this time is a character that you meet later in the game, Lady, or her name's Mary, but Dante just calls her Lady because he doesn't know her name. And she's talking about how her father would tell her stories uh, about the legendary Dark Knight Sparta and how she found out that Sparta had two sons, and they're just, like these fucking psychopaths who fight and like try to kill each other for fun <laughs> um and you know like it's it's very like 
the, there's dramatic music playing. There's like a fucking choir playing. Um, and it, it's all to set up this idea of like this really high intensity, like mythological battle. And then the very next scene has Dante in his shop eating a slice of cold pizza and he gets interrupted by a bunch of demons that are trying to kill him and he's like fighting and he's flinging around with his sword and his guns and like he's knocking billiard uh balls into them and it's like it's very much like the opening scene of Deadpool where just like they they take down and tear down the uh the high what is, what is the term I'm trying to think like of, melodrama Chris? kind of yeah, the, the like they just tear down the melodrama and make it as fun and campy and down to earth as possible, and that's something I I really enjoy about uh, those two game openings is that they both kind of tear that down and, then, and like that, take and... it from like this mythological like Castlevania type of romp and like immediately like oh no he's a ninja turtle yeah and that's what those games are is like you get that taste of like the high octane action and like this hint of, like, ooh, there's something more going on in the background, and then the game goes, like, yeah, but we know that's not why you're here. You're here yeah. so you can juggle people in the air with your bazooka. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, Devil May Cry 3 establishes, like, yes, this character has the backstory of, like, your Alucards and your, I don't know, like, just fucking demi-humans in general. Yeah. But, like, also, he treats... uh combat and fighting like he's tony hawk (laughs) tony hawk's pro combo yeah exactly exactly i love it so that that actually you mentioning castlevania put me in mind of another trope of video game openings that i i think we kind of both wanted to talk about that i think is really cool and it's the you see it a lot in metroidvania style games super metroid did it and i and castlevania symphony of the night did it where you you open the game with a character, Samus or Alucard, and I'm, I'm talking about the Al- Alucard's beginning of, of Symphony of the Night, not uh, not Richter's. Mm-hmm. But you open it up and you have a character that is like at more or less full power. Like Samus mm-hmm. has her powerful suit. She's got all of the, the upgrades and things. Alucard rolls into Dracula's castle with like his super dash and a great sword and all of this stuff. And then you, you get like a section to experience having all of this cool stuff and ha- being, you know, this super powered badass. And then the game takes it away. And so you get this like this taster, this like little, you know, the sommelier comes over and is like, mm, "Yes, the Castlevania Symphony of the Night is excellent tonight." And like pours your little taster and you get to waft it and like gargle it or whatever the fuck you're supposed to do with that taster pour of wine. I don't know, I'm not a fancy boy. And you're like, mm, yes, I think I will have that. And he's like, great, you can have that after you drink this bottle of two buck chuck. And <laughs> and it's so, no. like, you get that moment of like, oh shit, I'm going to be able to do so much cool shit once I find it. And it gives you this, like, this taste of what the game will turn into. And also this, like, motivator of, like, if I keep exploring, if I keep looking around this world, I'm going to find all of the stuff to be able to be as cool as I was in that opening 20 minutes yeah. of this game. I have to return to the status quo. Yeah. And then I think the, the best thing the games do with that concept is, like, not only are you back to the status quo, but even before you get back to that point, you've already found other stuff that, like, yeah. you didn't have at the start. Yeah, you found um, That's something things. that and, Metroid Prime did really well. Hmm? Yeah, and, and you as a player have improved to the point that, like, by the time you get back to that mechanical status quo that you started at, you as a player are so much better that you are 
like even more of a badass than you felt like in that opening section yeah like alucard with like all of his equipment is pretty strong but you know what else is strong learning the fighting game inputs to cast spells that like one shot bosses yeah no so that that kind of thing and that's less on like the storytelling element but it's it's a big element of the engagement aspect of these kinds of games it is a good transition for me to go into uh, Metroid Prime 2. Hell yeah. Because you you mentioned... Because uh, Super Metroid actually doesn't do that. Um, yeah, Super Metroid, you, I, you... I, was speaking, I was speaking out of line there, because Super Metroid is just the, uh, the, the space station segment. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Metroid Prime 2 has probably my favorite opening in the series. A little backstory, just because I think it's a, it's a fun story. Um, when I was a kid, I rented Metroid Prime twice, and then I did not play it for the entire weekend, because that's something about, like, the atmosphere and the first-person perspective, and, like, the the dying space pirates, like, really scared me. Oh, Um, yeah, that game, like, Metroid Prime is not a horror game. Metroid Prime is scarier than a lot of horror games I've played. (laughs) Yeah, uh... (laughs) Like, now I don't know if I can say that after playing no, Resident but, Evil 2 in, like, no. Silent Hill. But, like, no, you know, like, I'm not saying kid. there aren't scarier games out there. Just, like, they, they do such a good job with their atmosphere. Yeah. And to, like, build that sort of tension in a way that I've played a lot of horror games that do not do that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say I was... God, I, might, I, I was either 8 or 9 when Metroid Prime came out. So, I didn't play a lot of the original Metroid Prime. But, like... When I was, you know, 10 or 11, and I, I kept seeing all of these, like, in Nintendo Power, like, Metroid Prime 2 won so many Game of the Year awards, and, you know, I just kept seeing it in the magazine, and I'm like, alright, alright, I have to. And, like, you know, no matter what happens, Dylan, you're just gonna keep playing. <laughs> Up to this point, the only Metroid game I had played was Metroid Fusion, which is, like, you know, kind of horror-themed, but, like, still, like, very cartoony in its presentation, yeah. and I'm like... And it's it's, it's a it's, side-scrolling it's not going to get you the same way that, like, being in the suit in the first-person perspective would. Yeah, although I will say that the SAX is is pretty terrifying. But anyway, yeah. that's that's a tangent. So I, I, I rent Metroid Prime 2, I'm playing it, and... Oh my god. So the, the plot of Metroid Prime 2 is that you get a distress signal from a bunch of Galactic Federation, basically space police officers, and they are on a planet, and you are there to investigate and save them. So the first room, you're kind of learning the basic mechanics, like how to how to scan objects, uh, read flavor text, uh, how to lock on and stuff like that. And then, you know, the next room, I think, is more of the same. And then the third room, you just see the corpses of the gla- like of three Galactic Federation officers <laughs> hanging from the ceiling. I think one of them is being dragged up by something, but you never see what it is. <laughs> and there's just like this instant feeling of, oh, God, what happened? <laughs> yep. And, um, like, it, yeah, uh, another thing was I, I saw those corpses, and I'm like, oh, God, it would be really fucking freaky if those things came back to life. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, you get to, like, the end of this section, and all the corpses come back to life, and this is the only Metroid game that, like, actually has, like, any semblance of, like, zombies. Yep. And it's just like, fuck you, Dylan. We know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, remember how the last game was, was uh, spooking you? We turned it up to eleven. <laughs> yeah, like for real though. Um, and so you know, uh, you you're, you're fighting these zombie officers. I'm still learning the mechanics, so like I'm I'm I don't die, but like I'm still freaking the fuck out. Um, and then on top of that, you find a dark Samus, uh, who 
you learn later is like a uh, a parasite infected one of your old suits at the end of the last game and so that is basically inhabited your suit and is walking around as like a mirror version of yourself and so you follow them and then you follow it into a parallel like eldritchian dimension yeah it's and you're it's like attacked hey you know these... you know the dark world from linked from uh link to the past what if that had been designed by hr geiger yeah exactly exactly <laughs> and so you you go into like this this parallel universe where everything's dark and the atmosphere hurts you and you're just surrounded by these weird gross like bloodborne monsters and they all tackle you at once and you lose <laughs> all your power-ups and you're like oh oh no <laughs> this is great this is, this good is for where me. I am now. Like, I don't think a game has ever... Every other Metroid game I've ever played, I don't think any of them have made me feel as helpless as the beginning of Prime 2. Fusion is the only one that comes close. Yeah, and, and that's the other thing that's so great about that sort of video game trope of the, you know, we give you everything at the beginning and then we take it away, is it helps it, things feel so much more menacing because you know that there is a level of power that you will need for some portions of this world that you do not have anymore. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and not every it doesn't always lean in on that, but when it does, like like with Metroid Prime 2, it's so good and it's so effective. Yeah. I I'm I'm going to say Super Metroid. Okay, so in Super Metroid, it's not as scary, but I I still think it's super effective because I think this is the first Nintendo game where you actually see blood. <laughs> And it's in the title screen, dude. Um, like, you, you, you put in the cartridge, you, you turn the power on, you see the Nintendo logo, and then just eerie music plays. There's, like, camera pans of, like, a lab in disrepair. And then it zooms out, you see the title Super Metroid, and below the title is just corpses of researchers just fucking strewn about a lab. <laughs> and, ah, oh, it's so good. And then, um... When you start a new game, uh, Samus gives you some narration about the events of the first two games, and then basically says, like, yeah, so I left this Metroid. Metroids are very terrifying parasites, think the facehuggers from Alien. I gave them a Metroid to do research on, and then immediately I got a distress signal, to, like, maybe, like, an <laughs> hour or so after I left. And so you go back in, and no, there's no music playing, it's just, like, very, like, atmospheric background noise. I don't know. It does a similar thing that Metroid Prime 2 does, but it does it first, so I have to give it, like, a special mention. And also, it starts from the title screen. Yeah. Which, I guess in addition to that, like, we were talking about this earlier, but I, I think the reason why so many video games don't do the refusal of the call is because, you know, for the player, they accept the call. It's called pressing start. Yeah. <laughs> I want to play the game. Let me play the right. game. So so it's it feels like a formality that doesn't need to happen in a, a, like, you know, a lot of the time. Yeah, and and it genuinely does it. That I'm I'm trying to think of games other than God of War 2018 that like managed to work in a refusal of the call like that and have it feel like a reasonable thing to do in the story because it it doesn't feel <laughs> like a huge pacing break because they handle it very quickly in that game. Yeah. But there's not a lot of other games that I can think of that even attempt it because like you said it's the player wants to play the game. The player doesn't want to watch the the protagonist like hem and haw over whether or not to move on to the next level. Okay, so I I actually I think I have a couple on the the Final Fantasy side of things Ooh. and like uh the first one is in a weird roundabout way but the second one is played pretty straight well i cannot um, wait to hear about that when we get back yeah. from flipping through the playbill 
Come we along. love to keep you in suspense. Hello. Hello, we're here in the Playbill now, and... Dylan, you have another podcast that you'd like to share with the class, yes? Why, yes, I would. I would like to talk to you about Dude, You Remember Macross. It is a wonderful, wonderful podcast <laughs> featuring you. Oh, my God, I need to stop. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a podcast hosted by yours truly, as well as a mutual friend of ours. Where Kate, did that other delightful we... character go? <laughs> You're really gonna make me? Do no, this. I'm not. I just, I'm just being a shit. <laughs> okay. It's hosted by a mutual friend of ours, uh, Coop. We talk about uh, a lot of mecha anime, but in particular, we talk about uh, the franchise of uh, Macross, also known as Super Dimensional Fortress Macross. It's a show that started in the '80s, and it's about pop culture and mecha fights and what makes us human and all this good stuff. I, I don't know where we are in the episode count uh, right now because we, we have a bit of a backlog recorded, but uh, we recently watched Macross Plus, which, Chris, I actually, I think you should check out Macross Plus. It's a it's four episodes. They're 40-minute episodes, but um, they're four episodes. It's uh, directed by the guy behind Cowboy Bebop with music uh, behind the composer for Cowboy Bebop. Ah, so, and it's, on top of so that, it's Dude, You Remember Cowboy Bebop. <laughs> Yes, uh, in this case, yes. Um, but also the English voice acting is, you know, it's it's 90s anime voice acting, so keep that in mind. But, like, even still for, like, a 90s anime uh, OVA, it's it's got a solid cast, in addition to a lot of, like, known um, anime voice actors from that time. The main character's voiced by Brian Cranston. Yo, what? Yeah, he used to do a lot of voiceover for I, anime I forgot about Rangers. that. Like, that was his, like, back when he was on, still in, like, the Malcolm in the Middle phase of his career. I think this was pre-Malcolm in the Middle, actually. Holy like, that's, shit. Malcolm in the Middle was his big break. That's rad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's... Love it, me like, some voiceover, voiceover is definitely tough, and I feel like uh, modern voice actors have it a little bit more figured out. But, like, even still, like... You know, Brian Cranston's a good actor, and I think he he does a good job with, That's rad. with that. So, if that sounds interesting to you, you should check that out. And then, if you like what you saw, maybe you should check out Dude, You Remember Macross. Um, you can find that on... <laughs> Sorry, I, I keep Anchor. tabs Anchor.fm slash Dude, You Remember. No. That's Dude as in Dude, Where's My Car? Or at Twitter, on Twitter, at Dude, You Remember. Thank you, Chris. I got you. You should also go check out our friends over at The Unexplored Places, an actual play podcast, uh, currently four episodes into season two, so it's a great time to hop on board because season two is a brand new story, disconnected from season one. Season one, also very worth listening to if you want to marathon something. But I am so excited to finally record tonight. It's going to be a great time. We're recording uh, the first session that Dylan's character is going to be involved in tonight, so that'll probably be coming up. That'll probably be released sometime like January-ish, but... Uh, yeah. It's a great show. It's a great group of people. The whole thing is fantastic, and I highly recommend you check it out. You can find them by going to unexploredcast.libsyn.com or on Twitter at unexploredcast. Thank you, as always, to the HP Video Game Podcast Network for having us on the network. It's a network of video game-related podcasts uh, from a variety of angles. There's some that are kind of, like, documentary-ish. There's some that are on the development side. There's some that are on the fan side. There's some, like us, that are on the story side. 
if you like video games and you like podcasts, and I have to assume you do like at least one of those things because you're here, go check them out. And you can find all of their shows being retweeted at HPVG Pod Network on Twitter. Thank you, as always, to our patrons at patreon.com slash bsgpod. Thanks to you, we are doing this. It's all your fault, and we appreciate all of the support that we've gotten from all of you out there. If you like our show and want to help us do it better and want to help us afford things like episode transcripts and better equipment and more time to do things like this, patreon.com slash bsgpod is the best way to do that. I don't have anything else to add to the playbill. Oh, I lied. I do. Uh... (laughs) There's a podcast that I'm in as a voice actor that uh, the, a show called Superstition, and season two of Superstition just started on Friday the 13th. I am in episodes four and five, yes, four and five of this nice. season uh, as sort of a, a guest character. It was a great time to record. You'll also be able to hear me making zombie noises, and I won't say anything else beyond <laughs> that. Is, but uh, it's a great is Stevie it's, Wonder involved? Uh, maybe. Um, it's a great. <laughs> It's a great show. It was a great time to record. And you can find them on Twitter at Pod Superstition. That's P O D Superstition. You should check them out. Have a good time. Now we can go back to the meat of the episode. Follow Woo! me! So, anyway, Dylan, you were saying that you wanted to talk a little bit about some, uh, some of that good, good Final Fantasy. Yeah. So, I think it's important to uh, kind of brush over the, the way that RPGs open typically. Um, or I guess like, you know, the, the stereotypical RPG opening. What an idyllic um, village. Oh no, raiders. Yes. Everybody dead. Adventure time. <laughs> wow, you, you did that really well and succinctly. Like, yeah, that's um, like, I'm obviously being super uh, reductionist, but like so many RPGs. And not to say that this is a bad thing, because a lot of these games end up being very good. But a lot of mm-hmm. RPGs is like, I'm a boy in an idyllic pastoral village and then something happens to my village that forces me to leave (laughs) so i actually have an interesting i have an interesting uh example of an rpg that both like plays that straight but yet does more to make it interesting uh that i'll talk about after final fantasy so final fantasy one like it's either that or it's also like you're the hero of legend here's your starting town grab everything you need and start on your adventure yeah and um, sometimes it's a combination. Sometimes it's did. like, sometimes it's like, oops, surprise! You're the hero of legend, but you're also a farm boy. <laughs> like, yeah, like yeah. Uh, Dragon Age Eleven kind of goes halfway between those two. So uh, after Final Fantasy, I'm going to talk about Tales of Symphonia, which okay. does both of those. It does both of those. But I'm like, excited. I, I really love how it does it. Final Fantasy after the first game, I think, always tries to do some, or at least. For a while, they've always tried to do something where, like, you're just thrown straight into the action. And so Final Fantasy 2, actually, when you when you press start, the second you put in all of your characters' names, you go straight to a battle screen. And you are fighting off Im- the Imperial soldiers that have already invaded and burned down your home. So they, they skip all of, the, <laughs> all of the prelude and the preamble and all that stuff. And you are fighting, and you're dealing no damage... And they're one-shotting your party members. <laughs> and you are instantly knocked out. Um, and then, you know, then the game kind of slows down and, like, starts more formally with, like, the resistance movement uh, rescuing you and healing you, nursing you back to health. And you offer to join their ranks and then, you know, the game starts as, you know, you're playing the game. Yeah. Um, 
Final Fantasy III starts out with your party just kind of waking up in a dungeon and trying to figure out why are we here. Or no, I think you fall into the dungeon and you're like, oh shit, we really goofed up this time, gang. Let's get ourselves <laughs> out of here. And then I think the remake of Final Fantasy III changes it so it's just like the first character because now all the characters have like distinct names and personalities. Final Fantasy IV is kind of really when the games get really story intensive and a lot of characters with established backstories and blah blah blah. Uh, Final Fantasy IV, you are a soldier of the Imperial Army who is coming back from a mission in which you burn down a village, which is a really nice reversal of things. Yep. I really so love good. Final Fantasy IV. Final That's Fantasy IV my... kicks ass. Yeah, it's 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 my second favorite Final Fantasy game. Yeah, so Final Fantasy IV, you're you're on the way back from this mission, and there's dissent among your men. Another cool thing is that like uh, a, a common thing in Final Fantasy is the airship that you get as like an upgrade um, to your world progression and travel, and. It starts with, like, you are the leader of a fleet of Imperial soldiers who use airships. Um, and so, like, you can't use the airship, but just, like, that little bit of flavor alone is really cool. Yeah. Because, like, it, it, it just shows how much your rank is. There's a lot of, like, dissent among your men, and, like, you all feel really bad about what you just did. And it flashbacks to show what you did in the mission, um, and basically pillaging and ransacking this town. And... You're attacked by monsters, and then there's talk about, like, oh, man, there's been a lot of monsters lately, too. Is that an omen? And, like, <laughs> everyone's just not feeling good. Yeah. Um, and so... I also would uh, not feel good if there were a lot of monsters around. <laughs> <laughs> and so you when, you... when you turn in your your earnings to, uh, to the king, you make the mistake of questioning him and being like, my, all of my men are really unhappy. We need to know what is actually going on. And so you get stripped of your rank, and you are given a menial task to deliver a package to the the neighboring town um, across like across the mountains. And uh, you you are accompanied by your best friend Kane, and so the game kind of starts formally. And the reason why I'm still talking is because uh, we have the call to adventure. I f I feel like he refuses the call because like he he kind of goes back and forth on like should I challenge my king. No, he's the one who made me what I am. I cannot do that. And so you you do the mission, you you take the package, and you deliver it to uh, the, the village of Mist. And the package is actually enchanted, so that once it reaches the border of Mist, these, for all intents and purposes, fire elementals leave the package and raise the village to the ground. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. And you realize, like, you, you, you come across a little girl... And her mother's dead, and you realize, oh, that boss we fought in that cave—that was the, that was this girl's mother. Oh <laughs> and no! So all of that together is enough for him to be like, all right, you know what? Fuck this! I cannot abide by this anymore. This is him answering the call and being like, I I'm going to challenge my king. Final Fantasy V has a has a pretty straightforward opening, but. It's straightforward in terms of gameplay, in, in like terms of like story and intrigue, it, it starts out with like a lot of questions. You play as a basic adventurer. So the plot of the first Final Fantasy is that like the the crystals that keep the world's elements in balance uh, have lost their energy, and now you it's your job to re like restore those crystals. Final Fantasy V does the same thing, but the opening cutscene you kind of see all the crystals stop working, like 
not all of them, just the the wind crystal specifically, like the wind stops. So the oceans, oceans lose their current. Like there's a pirate captain who like her, her ship just stops in the water because there's, there's no current. <laughs> um, and on top of that, a meteor hits the ground. And so your character Bart's, he goes to investigate this and you know, there, there's a lot of intrigue, but it, it is kind of a slower opening because of it. Final Fantasy VI, you are a you are an imperial soldier and you are raising a town, uh, similar to what was happening in Final Fantasy IV. Oh man, there's a refusal of the call in that game too. Shit, <laughs> this might take longer than I thought. So basically, it is revealed that you were brainwashed by the imperial soldiers and you were rescued by the rebellion. Hey, just like in Final Fantasy II, but you're not sure if you want to join either force or if you want to live independently. Um, and so I can't really say that's a refusal of the call, though, because that takes a little bit longer than in Final Fantasy IV. Mm-hmm. But you, you do the opening dungeon. You realize that you're being used by uh, the Empire. An agent of the Resistance wants to recruit you, but there's also, like, the angry townspeople who are, you know, asking for your blood. So you go through another dungeon you go to it it's it's a whole thing um but it's it's also really good uh <laughs> final fantasy 7 is what i really wanted to talk about final fantasy 7 also this... has an incredibly strong intro yes and this is the last final fantasy game i'll talk about i promise final fantasy 7 has a strong intro because the status quo is that you are a mercenary helping a group of eco terrorists blow up a reactor so you can you know, stop the ener- the massive and unchecked energy consumption that is killing the planet. And for you, it's just a job. Uh, you're doing this as a favor to... You find out that you are doing this as a favor to your friend Tifa because you were childhood friends and, you know, she's like, oh, you're a mercenary now? Uh, I'll hire you for a job and you're, you, you do this whole thing, you get caught up in this. And after you do this job, like, you're basically like, I'm out of here the the guy that I had to fight with is an asshole. I don't like him. <laughs> um, and basically Tifa has to kind of stop you and be like, wait, but do you remember our childhood promise? <laughs> um, and it's, again, it, it's a whole thing. And I, I'm definitely giving you like the, not even the Spark Notes version of this, but the explosive opening where not only do you start in a dungeon, but you start in a dungeon where there's like, the the music is like very fast and exciting and then you fight the boss and then you set a bomb and you have to leave the dungeon in under 10 minutes or else it's an instant game over like that plus it's a great set piece it's an incredibly well done set piece plus it's easy to look back at final fantasy 7 from our position you know 20 years down the road and like kind of laugh at the the very like basic animation a Final Fantasy game had never looked like that. Yeah. They had never had the capability to show, like, a man jumping off a bridge onto a tr- moving train. Yeah. In the way like, that they did. And, like, yeah, it's blocky as all hell, but it's fucking rad. <laughs> it, exactly. Like, I think Final Fantasy VII makes an incredibly strong first impression. Hell yeah. And I think that's... It is the game that made Japanese turn-based RPGs catch on in in America. Yeah. Like, it, it, it is so strong in presentation, it is so strong in kind of, like, already starting with, like, rocket-high stakes. Yeah, um, it, it it does a very good job of setting up a high-stakes world in a way that the, like, you're a farm boy in an idyllic village 
just kind of doesn't. Like, that has different advantages. That kind of storytelling helps you grow to, like, care about this character and, like, their reason for doing things so that when the wrench gets thrown in the works, like, that is an emotional moment. And that there is strength to that for certain kinds of stories. Final mm -hmm. Fantasy VII doesn't want to be that kind of story. It wants to be the kind of story where the first thing that happens is you jump off a train with your fucking gigantic sword and get in a fight <laughs> with three guys with guns. Yeah, it's... Final Fantasy VII is wild, and, like, I, I'm really excited for the remake to kind of recapture that for a wide, modern audience. Yeah. I don't want to linger on Final Fantasy VII, though. I, I realize, like... As I was explaining it, it was really messy, and that's because I had to kind of condense <laughs> the first three hours of gameplay. <laughs> On the opposite end of things, uh, Tales of Symphonia is a very quiet game at the start. It, it starts off. It starts off with the main character Lloyd Irving being awoken in class. Well, okay, there's there's like a narration that's like, here's the current state of the world, and then <laughs> the main character is woken up in class uh, because his teacher uh, throws. A piece of chalk at him <laughs> like in persona 5 actually now that I think about it, huh? <laughs> but but anyway so he wakes up and then his best friend genus um he he basically kind of recaps like what the current state of the world is there are half elves called designs who are evil and terrible and the worst and they are basically enslaving humans and on top of that the world's mana is being depleted so the earth will die soon and it's up to the chosen of regeneration who happens to be a classmate of theirs to uh you know when when the oracle happened i'm trying to remember i think it's called like the event is called the oracle but don't worry about it too much when when the sign happens uh she is to begin her journey to regenerate the world and rid the world of designs and wouldn't you wouldn't you have it that's exactly what happens uh there's a flash of light and it's like oh god it's time and so it's it's a really slow burn and I, i'm that that's probably all the detail i'm gonna have to go into that uh but as you kind of as she gets ready for her her journey um and you're kind of there as her friend um and you're you're kind of going off on your own adventures and i want to say like the world the the your hometown doesn't get raised to the ground by the designs for like three or four hours it's a really slow burn but like <laughs> in that time you are getting to know this classmate who is one of your dearest friends you're actually um getting ready for preparations for her birthday i really there's so much detail in this opening that it honestly deserves its own episode <laughs> um, but i i guess like to to really spark notes in and like kind of bear it down to its its chorus essentials you are introduced to an entire party of characters your classmates are your mage and the chosen one you are the swordsman your teacher is the cleric and there's a mercenary who wants to protect the chosen as you know his job and he's he's your second swordsman spellcaster jack of all trades type character um and so it already establishes immediately before you leave the, ta the town who the key players are for the next, like, 15 to 20 hours of your journey. It establishes the stakes, the personal connections between the characters. It, you, you, you kind of, through your own village's relationship with the evil designs, you, you have a, a very personal view of the stakes. Um, and then, like, when the, the village burns down, and spoiler alert, it's technically your fault, you also 
are left behind because the Chosen doesn't want you to be on this journey with her. She's concerned for your safety. So there's also a bit of mystery on where they, where did they go? We have to catch up with them. We we can't stay here anymore. <laughs> um, it's just like, it, it's so well done. And I, 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 I gotta stop because... I know we're we're running down on time, but that's final. Uh, not Final Fantasy. Tales of Symphonia has probably one of my favorite slow burn openings of any JRPG I've ever played. That's fucking cool. The last thing I wanted to talk about because again, it it kind of feels like it wouldn't be us if we didn't talk about this game once every five episodes. Uh, oh yeah, it's Iconoclast. <laughs> yeah, of course, it's Iconoclast. Dylan and my one of our favorite indie games iconoclast has such a good opening it opens with like this sort of like panning up through the earth and you Mm -hmm. see like machinery wake up and that's oh you do okay i'm looking this up now just a little bit and then you see this like very idyllic home and you as robin the main character are awoken by a rumble and you set out and, like, the only way for you to go is off in one direction where you do some platforming and fight some little enemies and you have, like, a boss fight with this buzzsaw enemy. And then you come back to your house and that's where, as we've talked about before on this show, Agent Black and Agent White are waiting for you to harangue you in one of my favorite all-text cutscenes of all time. <laughs> and, like, it, this game isn't doing anything phenomenal with its opening. But its opening is is similar to what I was saying about... um, This was less than an hour ago, and I forgot what I said. Uh, Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, similar to what I was saying about, like, the original God of War's opening. It's just such a good vertical slice of of what this game is going to be. And it's such a good, like, here is what you're going to be doing over the course of this game. You're going to be jumping, you're going to be fighting some guys, you're going to be having boss fights... And the way that the world is laid out, you can see things that are clearly meant to be interacted with that you do not yet have the tools to interact with. So it's setting up this expectation of, like, I'm going to become able to do new things, and I'm going to be able to return to these areas and see new parts of them later on in the story. And like, I also like how it kind of... Because it, it does start with that shot of the earth rumbling. When you when you fight the first boss, it's kind of this fake out of like, I did it. I solved the problem. Yeah. That was that was what made the earth rumble. That's what woke me up. There's there we go. And like it it isn't anything spectacular, but it's a very well done vertical slice and a very well done like, here is what this game is going to be. And I I just wanted to mention it because not everything needs to be revolutionary yeah there's something to a game that just like has a very strong kind of traditional opening to let you get used to the world so that then you can go out and like figure out figure it out from there also i just wanted to show some iconoclast love because we haven't in a while and this game kicks fucking ass so (laughs) anyway that's that's buy and play iconoclast yeah everyone do it so that this guy can make more games (laughs) (laughs) anyway that's all i had for this week i hope that you guys had fun i had fun i hope you had fun dylan i had fun hell yeah we all had fun i i realized like during this episode like oh man there's a lot of characters and plot lines and plot threads that i need to cover as these rpgs get more and more complex (laughs) in their storytelling yeah uh which was like the one issue that i was kind of running into but like other than that like 
yeah, no, I, I had a blast. Hell yeah. And I hope that you had a blast, listener, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you, as always, for listening to Backstage Gaming. We appreciate your time. If you like the show, consider leaving a review on iTunes and consider telling your friends about it, telling your family, telling uh, a screenwriter that you meet in a coffee shop about our cool thing where we sometimes talk about film theory. Um, (laughs) If you want to find us, you can always find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can check us out at our website, bsgpod.com, where we've also got our glossary of terms and a contact form where you can get in touch with us if that is what you want to do. Hey, Dylan, if they wanted to reach out to us otherwise, maybe via social media, how would they do that? Yo, so if you want to hit us up, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter. Our handle is at BSG underscore pod. And you can also find us on YouTube, although I wouldn't I wouldn't hit us up on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, um, if, you, if you like us and if you want to talk about what we do, you should use the hashtag BSG pod. Also, I think I think we should credit our friends. Uh, huge, huge thank you to our friend Brennan French for the key art that he has provided us with. Um, if you dig his stuff, you should check him out at brennan-french.squarespace.com. That is b-r-e-n-n-e-n-french.squarespace.com. You can also find him on instagram.com slash brennanfrencharts. You should also... Go show some love to our friend BioQuery. He is the composer behind our theme song, Dot Sound Radio, Volume 1 Instrumentality. He's also a uh, an electronica producer, composer, and musician with a bunch of different artists out in L.A. And you can find out more about his music by going to soundcloud.com slash BioQuery or by searching for BioQuery, that's B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y, on Spotify. Thank you, as always, to the HP Video Game Podcast Network for having us on the network. Like I said, if you like video games and you like podcasts, and if you don't, what the fuck are you doing here? Go check them out. Find, follow them on Twitter <laughs> at HPVG Pod Network. Thank you again to our patrons. This is all your fault, and without you, we wouldn't be able to keep doing this as reliably as we do. If you want to help us out and want to help us do this more and better and provide different services, you can find out more about how to do that at patreon.com slash bsgpod. And I think that's it for us this week. Thank you all so much for listening and we will talk to you again next week. Goodbye! Goodbye now. Goodbye! Have a fun adventure! Goodbye.